0: We'll be reading out of Luke 24, um, verses 1 through 15 this morning. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women that with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them.
1: There's an, there's an older movie, The Sixth Sense, that probably most of you, many of you have seen, and if you've seen it, you know it's a, it's a movie you can only see twice, really, and enjoy it. Uh, because once you know the ending, it changes kind of how you how you view the whole thing, because the ending is shocking. It's intended to be, and so now if you have if you don't know the ending, if if um, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry to be the spoiler, but it came out in 1999. You've had your chance, and so just it's your problem. But the spoiler is that Bruce Willis's character is actually dead. Um, and so that he plays this child psychologist which is I, I realize is a strange casting Bruce Willis is a child psychologist but he's trying to help this young boy who sees dead people and and but it turns out that Bruce Willis is one of the one of the people who's dead and that becomes apparent at the end and now if you go back through the movie and watch it again then you 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 it's so obvious that he's dead he's He's sitting with his wife at dinner and she's not talking to him or looking at him. Uh, he's, he, no one really talks to him except for this young boy. So you can't, you can't help but watch the movie in light of that ending. Now, with that said, the story of Jesus is the exact opposite of the sixth sense. When you get to the end, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And, and the gospel, this, this story is the good news that, that the hero of the story is alive and well. And as you go back through the story of the scriptures, as you, when you know the ending and you go back through the story of the scriptures and you go back to the beginning and see it all, you can't help but read them in light of that ending, in light of the good news. It's, it's all pointing to Him. It's all pointing to our need for Him. It's anticipating Jesus' suffering and His death and His resurrection and His glorification. And so knowing that the, the crucified Christ is alive, it doesn't just make sense of the storyline of Scripture, though it does, and we're going to see that this morning, but it changes us. It changes lives. It, the risen Christ changes us. Christ completely changed these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, as we're going to see. We haven't even got to that part of the story yet, but I wanted Tim to set it up by reading that resurrection account. Um, but, but by His grace... He's changing and he's transforming us as well, and we can testify to that, can we, brothers and sisters? if you're in Christ and he can change your life if you're if you're here today and you're without Christ this is this is the message, and so we have here this, as I mentioned, the third recorded appearance of the risen Christ, and it's quite unique among the other appearances. I mean, they're all rather unique, but it's unique here because he's walking and he's talking with these two disciples. For a distance of about seven miles. So it would take what, two and a half, three hours, probably at a just a casual pace as they're walking back to this village. Now, sort of a side note from the, the main thrust of the message, but this this, this journey and, and the things that happened after it, as we're gonna see this week and next, that it reveals some very amazing things about Christ's resurrected state, his body. And so just a couple things. One, there's no signs of weakness or tiredness in him at all. You notice that? That I mean, he's just think of the extreme suffering that he has just endured the, the beatings, the blood loss, the, the excruciating hours hanging on that cross before he finally breathed his last breath. And then he spent two nights in that cold garden tomb with no food, no water. And, and, and so, a resurrected Lord, though, as we find Him here in Luke 24, the day of His resurrection, He is physically fit enough to walk these seven miles with no apparent difficulty. And, and He's also mentally sound. He's able to give this, as we're going to see this, in-depth Bible study, cohesive storyline of, story of Scripture and, and along the way. And when they reach Emmaus, He's not even tired. He doesn't need to rest. He could have kept on going. And so what a, what a contrast to, to, to those times when Jesus was tired and he was hungry and he was thirsty after a, a long journey. Those times when he was just physically depleted and he had to get away and, and rest. And so that's one thing. We, we note this about Christ's resurrected body. It's just, it's not tired. It's not weak. The, the, all of that suffering is removed. Secondly, and all, we'll see the beauty of that, but secondly, we we see when the eyes of his disciples are opened at the end of this story, we haven't got there yet, I realize, but if you know what's coming, there's this other amazing thing that happens, is that, text says, he vanished from their sight. He vanished from their sight. And so, then later we're going to see, next week, as, as these two disciples, they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the, disciples, the other disciples what's happened, the, the Lord suddenly appears in their midst. He reappears. And so, so the resurrected of our body, body of our Lord, it can it can it can vanish; it can appear again at will. And so it's defying the the, the natural laws of physics that we we know. And so all of these things, they, they again, they show us how glorious the resurrected body of our Lord was. Is it's a body that needs no medicine; it needs no rest. It it's strong; it has perfect stamina body that, again, defies those kind of normal laws of physiology that we, we're so bound to now. And and I would just say, by way of application, that this is a very comforting thought to us, isn't it? Who are saved. Particularly as we deal with physical weakness, our own maladies and our own pains and, and difficulties in this body, and we see others that we love suffer, it, 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 it's that one day we will have a resurrected body patterned after our Lord's. And so there we can we get this little little preview of coming attractions here of our future future bodies, and we can praise the Lord for that. There will be no more arthritis, and no more cancer, and no more vision problems, and no more back issues, and heart troubles, no more sleep problems, or Alzheimer's, or depression, or or nerve diseases, or hearing loss, or even just common colds. It'll be gone. This is a this is a. Wonderful hope for us, isn't it? I mean, it's a real hope. All right, so off of that, back on the main road of this passage and, and, and what we're doing here. And so our main road in this series in particular is we're looking at these meal accounts in Luke. And so this lengthy passage, we haven't even got to the meal part yet in the reading, but it, it ends with Jesus breaking bread with these two very despondent disciples, as we're going to see. And and like all of the meals we've seen this summer in this series, His his grace is on display here in the meal and in everything that precedes and follows the food here. And so we're going to see His grace on full display. And and that'll be kind of the the way we track through this passage. The first thing that we'll see of Jesus' grace is His grace to pursue, His grace to pursue. One of our challenges when we come to this text, and again, we haven't read the whole story yet, but... If you are familiar, if you've heard the Gospel of Luke preach, if you've read through uh, this, this passage in this account, you know what's coming. You know the end of the story, and that can kind of, kind of dull the impact of, of it perhaps if we're so familiar with the story. But we know that Jesus is risen. We know that Jesus is going to appear to these two disciples and make himself known so that they can recognize him. And so we find it maybe a little bit difficult to to enter into their grief, to enter into their disappointment and sadness here that that they're experiencing the grief of these disciples. But it's it's important that we try to try to do that to really unfold the beauty and the grace that's here. And so, first, what do we know about these two disciples here? What do we know about them? Not much. Um, they're they're not among that inner circle of disciples, the twelve, but they would be part of this larger group of disciples who followed Jesus during. His earthly ministry. We don't know for how long, but could have been for three years, could have been for three months. We're not sure. We, we were given the name of one of them in the passage here, Cleopas. We don't know who the other was. Was it his wife? Was it just some other unnamed disciple? We're not sure. We can assume Cleopas is a name that, that as, the, as the, the church came into being and churches gathered and read the Scriptures and Luke wrote this account knowing that those who would hear it would know exactly who this man is. So he gives Cleopas his name. Now, like other followers of Jesus, though, this is what we can be certain of. They, they no doubt were full of hope and joy just a few days prior when Jesus came into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. An optimism, an expectation of of here's our king. He's coming to set us free. He's coming to deal with Rome and and set Israel free. And so they they were full of that nationalistic pride and and hope, like the other disciples. We're certain we can be certain of that. But now we meet them just a few short days later, and it's all changed. They, they, they're devastated. They're despairing now after they've seen this one that they've put their hopes in crucified. They're sad. We're going to see that word. So look at verse 13. This is where our account begins. That very day, the, the day that Christ rose, that first day of the week, Sunday, Easter Sunday, two of them, two of these disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all these things that had happened. So as that sun arose on Sunday morning. The, the, the Passover feast has now come to an end. And and these two really disillusioned Jesus followers, they left Jerusalem for home. That's kind of the assumption. They're going back home to, their, to this village of Emmaus. This little town. And they're probably kind of ready to leave their foolish dreams behind in Jerusalem. This chapter is sort of closed in their life. And they would probably... They would probably have already gone home after Jesus was crucified, but they couldn't travel on the Sabbath, so they wait until Sunday. And so this dejected pair, they begin this seven-mile walk to the little village of Emmaus. Even as we see, there are these rumors of, of resurrection that are circulating among Jesus' disciples. That was, that was already happening, but there's, there's no indication in the story here as it's recorded for us. That they had any sense of hope, any sense that something world changing had happened. They're just, they're just trying to piece these little bits of data together, but they're, they're despairing. They're despondent. They're going home. They're going back to their village to sort out all of their troubled thoughts and all of their shattered hopes that they're having to let go of now. That's what we find. That's how we find them. And as they walk, verse 15 says, they're, they're talking and discussing. Talking and discussing. It's, it's more literally conversing and disputing. It's more animated than just kind of casual, you know, chit chat about things that have happened. No, there, there's this lively back and forth between them. They're, they're trying to make sense of everything that's happened, everything they've witnessed and, and, and trying to piece it all together, trying to figure out why their expectations for the Messiah have now come to this abrupt and very tragic end. Look at verse 15. So while they were talking and discussing together as they're walking this road, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. And then verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. So there's some we call literary irony here. That, that, that the, we, the readers, we are aware of, of, of important facts that are hidden from the characters in the story. And so these two disciples there seem supernaturally kept from recognizing that this is Jesus for the time being, but we, the reader, we know it's Him. And look verse 17. And He said to them, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And then Luke adds, and they stood still looking sad. So they actually have to stop walking so they can begin to answer Jesus' question because they're so downhearted. And, and, and notice the, what Jesus does. He doesn't just burst on the scene and say, I'm here! I'm alive! It's me! And what does He do? He asks questions. He, he, and Luke's capturing the, the drama of all of this as it as it actually happened. And so Jesus listens to them kind of tell the story from their perspective. He listens to them as they share their pain, as they speak about their disappointment. In verse 18, Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now again, talk about irony. This is, this is just dripping with it. If any, anybody understood what had been happening in Jerusalem, it was Jesus. He's he's the lead character, but again, their eyes are prevented from seeing him. Verse nineteen, and he said to them, "What things?" Playing along, and they said to him, "This is kind of the gospel according to Cleopas here, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests." and rulers delivered Him up to be condemned to death and crucified Him. But we had hoped. Don't miss that. We had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find His body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, the tomb empty, but Him they did not see. So these these men—they're—they're they're trying to piece this all together. They're trying to fit it together, but it's clear they—they are missing some key, uh, critical pieces here. We see evidence of of some faulty perspectives that these two men had as they're trying to trying to understand all that's been happening here and make sense of it all. So just some, some of their faulty perspectives. One, we see that their understanding of these events, it lacked any kind of spiritual or divine dimension. That's how they're talking. It's leaving them with this purely human understanding of events. Just see how Cleopas characterized the death of Jesus. Did you did you did you miss the lack of divine involvement in the story? Secondly, that you you we this faulty perspective their their own agenda is what's driving their expectations about Jesus. Now, this was not just unique to them. Many of Jesus's followers they they made this mistake of thinking that that Jesus would merely kind of recapture the glory days of King David. That, that In other words, they hoped that Jesus would bring Israel that same power and prosperity that she once enjoyed, only now it would be magnified and would be multiplied. It would be even greater. And yet compared to the reality that's in front of them, Roman oppression still secure, and a dead Messiah. Their their hopes of glory, they just seem to be utterly destroyed. We had hoped... We had hope. They they had this political hope for power and influence and glory. But those hopes they've been completely dashed. So sad. The th- a third faulty perspective is is maybe the most obvious. But they failed to believe the resurrection. They failed to believe if if these two disciples actually believed or truly believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, they would not be walking away from Jerusalem. They would be staying put, they would be looking for him waiting to see their Lord risen from the dead. And and that would have changed everything. That would have changed the way that they viewed his sufferings, that would have changed the way they viewed his, his trials, that would have changed the way they viewed his death, that would have changed the way they viewed his burial, his body in that tomb. And they would have seen all of that as, as the fulfillment of things that were promised. Not as an end to all of their hopes. But they didn't believe. They were hey, This was a major problem with their perspective. They didn't take into account resurrection. So these men, they're despairing. They're despairing. They thought Jesus was the one they were looking for. Then he died, and with them, their hopes. So what now? I mean, it's got to be the big question for them. What are we going to do now? Just go back to life as it was? Does anything change? Listen, before we move on, just say we are. We today are not immune from. Despondency, immune to despondency as followers of Jesus are. We can we can share. I realize we sit in a different place and we have the completed canon. We know the rest of the story, but we can still share the faulty perspectives that they had. We have our own versions of this, don't we? We can see our lives. We can see our circumstances. We can interpret the happenings. We can interpret the headlines around us only in human terms. And we, and we can fail to acknowledge that God is sovereign and He is involved and He is orchestrating. We, our own agendas can drive our expectations. You know how this looks for us? Oftentimes, it, it's like we try we try and write the script for God and then deliver it to Him and, and, and tell Him how He needs to work in our situation. We may not be so bold and audacious as to tell Him, but we we're thinking it. This is what would be best. This is how God should work in this situation. We, we our agendas can drive our expectations of the Lord, just like they did for these men. And, and we can also we can fail to live in light of the reality of the empty tomb. We can and and therefore despair can be can be our traveling companion as we walk through life, even as believers. this this will happen at times because in a sense, We are still sort of living between Good Friday and Easter. Now listen, Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. The, 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 we have this certain pledge of our future resurrection, brothers and sisters. This is not up for grabs. It's not questionable. No. But we still haven't received our resurrection bodies. We, we have to, we, we are still living within this kind of tension. We, the world has yet to be renewed. We're still living in this world that's under God's curse. And so as Christians, we, we have resurrection life in Christ. We do presently, but we have it now so that we might walk the way of the cross. There's suffering. There's difficulty. And, and, and sometimes, again, our perspective is off, and so we despair. So we can't help but identify with these disciples and, and with their pain. I think we, we, we should. At times, we despair over the circumstances of our lives. We lose heart when our expectations about the future just come crashing down. We, we've, hoped, we've hoped for things that we thought had to be on God's agenda for our lives. But those hopes have been just utterly dashed. Our political hopes can come crashing down. Our, we can have all kinds of questions about our lives and about our world and have very few answers. We can be puzzled by injustices we see all around us. We can live in the the miserable company of fear and worry as we anticipate the future, tomorrow, next week, next year. We can be despondent. We can be downhearted. But listen, take encouragement from what we see here. This is where we're getting. We see this is grace to pursue, and so what do we see in this account? As as we find these two men in the, in this despondency, in this sadness, they they have to stop. They can't even keep going as they as they recount these things. One of the what do we see here? One we see Jesus knows. He knows. He knows these men. He knows what they're going through. He knows the struggles. He knows the sadness. He knows the questions. He knows their faulty expectations. He knows their dashed hopes. He knows everything about these men. He knows how many hairs are on their heads. He knows them through and through. He knows where they are and and where they're planning to go on this journey and why they're going. kind of questions they're asking. He knows. And secondly, Jesus cares. He cares. These two nobody disciples from this no place town. On the, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, probably the most important day in history, Jesus is there. He, has, he gives them this His personal attention for these three hours plus, probably. Of all of the places that Jesus could have been, that day He's there with these two disciples. Disciples, and he cares about them. He cares about their stories. He cares about their sadness. He knows. He cares, and he goes to them. This is this is not convenient, <laughs> and so. But Jesus walks these seven miles with these men, or joins them at some point along the way, and goes the whole way. He's going out of his way to Emmaus. To pursue these despondent disciples, he he is drawing near to them. He's pursuing his brokenhearted followers, and he corrects. He corrects. He he loves them enough not just to sit there and listen to them and kind of their sob story, though he does, and he's asking questions. And and but he doesn't just leave them in their despondency. He he as we'll see, he points them away from themselves to himself. He points them to. To himself. These disciples who had, as we said, who they've written their own scripts for Jesus as, as this conquering king, delivering them from Rome. They're now ready basically to write him out of their stories and move on, it seems. Because the triumphant king, he's become this victim of betrayal, of power politics, of whatever. He, he just hasn't measured up. He hasn't he, ha- he didn't play the part that they'd written for him and he's totally messed up their happily ever after ending that they had for him and so when Jesus stopped following the script he stopped following the script of the conquering hero he basically had to be written out but Jesus won't be he won't be he Christ will not be written out he is this is grace he's pursuing them and he's he's his very presence with him it forces them to rethink all of their faulty perspectives and it totally reorients them it's 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 this it's this it's, it's this abrupt intrusion into their despondency i just say dear despondent believer if you're here today if you're watching from home and maybe that's part of your sadness is you've been away from the assembly for months and months now and it's difficult Maybe maybe today's a hard day. Let me just say, Jesus knows you. He knows. And He cares. He cares about even you and what you're going through. No matter how big or small it seems on the scale of difficulties of life, He cares. He, He hears your confused and desperate pleas that are full of faulty perspectives like it was for these two men. He, he pursues you he's he's not just waiting with arms folded hoping you'll come to your senses and come back he's going he's coming for you even this morning as as his word is open he's speaking to you and he's he's pursuing he will lovingly correct you he will he longs to grow your understanding of who he is and why he came and he and he and he wants your confidence in him to grow and he will he will not be written out of the script he refuses to So take heart, dear friends. The same Lord Jesus that that brought light and hope into the lives of these two disciples, he can do the same for you. So this grace to pursue. Secondly, don't worry, these will be quicker. Grace to provoke. Yes, they're going to be all peas this morning. Just deal with it, all right? So I've been out for a couple weeks, and it's just what's happened. Grace to pursue, grace to provoke. So Jesus says, listen to these two disciples. They voice their confusion, they voice their despondency over the events that have transpired, at least from their perspective, which is faulty, but this is how they've seen it. Now Jesus takes over the conversation. Verse 25, you see the provoking nature of his words, and he said to them, Oh foolish ones, this not, is not a stern, angry rebuke, but this is a this is a loving master who's 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 arresting their attention here and correcting their perspective, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not, listen to this word, necessary that the Christ should suffer, the Messiah should suffer these things and, and enter into His glory? And then verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now listen, I know that superlatives can be overused and preachers may be the ones most guilty of that. I've probably done that already this morning. So if you went back and listened again. It's a family joke with my dad and my kids. We tease him about this all the time, but after every... Just about every meal, every home cooked meal especially, he'll say at the end of that meal, I think that's the best whatever we ate that I've ever had. Says it almost every time. And if he doesn't say it, you're like, man, this must have really stanked, you know. But <laughs> but he says it so often it really doesn't mean much other than that he really enjoyed the meal. Um, and so we don't we kind of take it with a grain of salt. But I'm going to use a superlative here, and I believe it's accurate. And it's just simply this: what's recorded here uh, must be the best small group Bible study ever. I mean, this—you know—there's places in Scripture we think, "Man, I would have loved to have been there for this." But this is high on that list for me. Can you, can you imagine being part of this conversation? Just walking with Jesus as He goes through the whole story of the Bible. Explaining how he's tied into it all. This would have been incredible. And so he takes them through this kind of expository tour of the Old Testament, this crash course in Old Testament interpretation. And in doing so, you notice he's emphasizing primarily two things. One is this, the Messiah had to suffer these things. He had to suffer in the way that he suffered if he was going to deal with sin and reconcile sinners to God. It had to be this way. The atonement of his death was, look at that word again, necessary. Necessary as this prelude to his glorification. Secondly, what he's doing is he's explaining that he is the key to Old Testament revelation. So so beginning with Moses, starting in Genesis, he's walking through the Garden of Eden, he's Eden, he's walking through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and, and then he gets to Exodus and Leviticus, and then he goes through the prophets. I mean, we read Isaiah 53 earlier, and just can you imagine Jesus walking through that passage with these disciples? He's going to the Psalms and he's unpacking how all of it's pointing to him. And all the promises, all the stories, all the images are pointing to Him. He's a, the, the Bible. Listen, the Bible is not just this disjointed collection of, of 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 passages and of verses. It is this single true story with a plot line. And I know there's different ways of of of, of describing that. You know, we we throughout. Recently I hear, you know, the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's a, that's a, that's a helpful way of kind of tracing that plot line. But we could just say the Bible, it's the story of this king, this king who would suffer and die as a rebel on behalf of rebels. And, and he would be vindicated by his resurrection and give life in his kingdom to those who would receive him. This is, this is the story. So Jesus is laying this out and let me just say by way of encouragement with that in mind, the Old Testament brothers and sisters, it's not to be dusty in our Bibles. This is a Christian book. This is, this is life to us. This is, this is we, something we need to read and study and, 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 and delight in God's revelation of Himself and of His purposes and how Jesus is, is being pointed to in the Scriptures. I know we, we've, we've, more recently, we've been in Genesis and we we've, we've been in uh, kings not that long ago and we're going to be in Esther this fall and we're going to see these very truths and and so and I also want you to note something else here as we get back to the this this story if the risen Christ if the risen Christ on that first Easter Sunday made himself known through the word then shouldn't then we shouldn't suppose that we can make him known better any other way in other words, He didn't perform a miracle to show them who He is, why He came, how things fit together. He didn't tell them to go on you know, some contemplation retreat or something like that and, and, and just to look inside of themselves until you find your hearts burning. He walked them through Scripture. No amount of human wisdom or philosophy or contemplation or anything, no experience apart from the Bible will tell you the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Only God's Word will make people's hearts burn. We need His revelation to us. We need it pointing us to Christ to deal with our despondency. So may the Lord clear the the clouds of our despondency that we do walk through. Maybe some are walking through now. Uh, uh, Clear those away and, and cause our hearts to burn bright and hot as we understand the Scriptures and we see Jesus in them and see why He came, what He accomplished for the good of our soul, for the joy of our heart, brothers and sisters. Don't be content with just a superficial knowledge of this precious book. And I, listen, I'm thankful. I'm, most of you have been blessed to be taught the Bible. For years, and, and you know how to read and interpret the scriptures. And I am always encouraged to hear you share the things that God's teaching you and the way he's sustaining you through trials and he's, he's giving you joy and, and difficulties. And, and just the way the Lord uses this word and it's giving you wisdom for decisions that you have to make. But you've sat, many of you have sat under the faithful preaching and teaching of the word for years. That's a blessing. You've learned to recognize how Christ is revealed Throughout the Bible, you, therefore, you've learned to see God's grace in your suffering, finding strength in this book. What a gift. What a gift. What, but, but Paul's words are true, not, not only for these two disciples in this text, but for us. Listen, we, we still, we see dimly. We see dimly. Now we see in part, but one, one day, brothers and sisters, we're going to see face to face. That's our hope we have we have this word and and as we'll see down in verse 32 the the the, the hearts of these disciples are burning as jesus as jesus opens us up for them well all right we keep moving the the road the miles i i bet they're just gobbled up gobbled up quickly by the the riveting words of our lord here I, i i doubt it seemed like a long journey to these men as jesus is speaking and so emmaus though it's in their sight it's it's the, and, and now their new friend is going to keep on going and is going to be departing from them. And so it's the end of the long day. We find out it's the end of the day. And Cleopas and his companion, what do they do? They urge Jesus to stay within the night. It's, it, the roads at that time were it was dangerous to travel at night. There were robbers, there were animals, there were all kinds of, 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 of safety issues. So verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. And the day is now far spent, so he went in to stay with them. So, grace to pursue, grace to provoke, and then third, and this is the this was the fourth one: grace to present, grace to unveil. This is where we get to the climax here. So for three hours, they they talked with, they walked with Jesus, they talked with him as he explained the scriptures, but they didn't recognize that he was their Lord. Now, how is that possible? Well, again, verse sixteen. Supernaturally it seems their eyes were kept from recognizing him that's what the text says so god deliberately kept them in the dark at least for the time being kept them from knowing who jesus was why though why why keep that masquerade going i think it was so that jesus could explain what he explained to them first so that he might so that they might come to this clearer understanding of, of why Jesus suffered and how the law and the prophets pointed to Him so that their hearts might burn before their eyes are opened. I think that's as much as we can say. And So verse 30, then He was at table with Him, and when He was at table with them, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized Him. Now, this is more than just uh a, re- a mere recognition of His physical features. Oh, it's Jesus. It's, it's not just that. It is that, but it's more than that. I think they came to recognize Jesus in all of His significance as the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the risen Lord. It's, it's them connecting the dots between all that the law and the prophets were sp- spoke of uh, about the Messiah and now the crucified and risen Jesus. It's say, oh, we see, we see. And notice what their opened eyes are connected with. That's this series. A meal. A meal. Something very significant about this being the moment that their eyes are opened. And I I say that because because when they recount this story to the other disciples in in verse 35, they explicitly say, He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So they're, they're making that connection explicit. So Jesus has done this Same sequence of actions multiple times before. And and, and so in Luke, we find at least recorded two times. We find it in the feeding of the 5,000. We find it where we were at last week at the last Passover meal. And and, and, and so the, the Lord's Supper is that's instituted. Jesus, here's the sequence, took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And it's when Jesus does this same sequence with these men that God chooses to open their eyes so that they can recognize Jesus. What's going on? I mean, the, the Lord has pointed to Himself in Scriptures and their hearts burned as they understood Christ and, and why He came, and now the Lord unveils Himself to them and so that they can recognize Him opening their eyes at the table. Now I'm not alone in seeing that this is, this is the pattern for the church. Throughout church history, Christians have recognized that That the Word and the table are those primary means through which which our understanding of Christ grows and our faith in in, in Christ is strengthened. The Word and the table, they tell us that Christ in His grace is present with us, is speaking to us, is pursuing us, is blessing us, is sustaining us, is helping us, is strengthening us. This is is how He he, he does. He presents Himself to us. He unveils Himself to us. We go on. Verse 31, he he goes on. He says, and he vanished from their sight. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And then they go into action. So grace to pursue, grace to provoke, grace to present or to unveil, and then finally, grace to propel. Look at verse 33. And they rose that same hour, and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So for these two disciples, meeting the risen Christ meant this immediate, radical change of plans for them. They they, they, they did this complete about-face and they 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 literally retrace their steps to Jerusalem. They've just arrived after this three-hour, seven-mile-long journey. It's already late in the evening, but what they want to do, they cannot wait until morning. They, the news they have is just too wonderful to keep to themselves. And so, in haste, they set out on this seven-mile return trip to Jerusalem. I bet you they made the journey a little quicker. <laughs> I think this was probably a PR for them. They probably made that journey a lot, but I bet this was the fastest they ever went. This is probably a run. Now, you just think of again, think of how significant this is. They do exactly what they urge Christ not to do. Don't go out. It's dark. It's late. It's dangerous. And they take the road at night with all of its dangers and risks. But more than that, they're connected to Jesus. They're, they're, They're known as followers of an executed traitor. And they're returning to a city that's full of rumors about Jesus' body being stolen by His disciples and other kinds of things. They're going right into the fire, but they return because now everything's changed for them. And off they went without delay. I just imagine just an unfinished meal left on the table. They're just in haste, gone. And their mood on their return journey, it had to be radically different from what it was like earlier. They were downcast before, but now they're upbeat and they're enthusiastic and they're bold. They're going. And you can imagine their minds racing and their conversation, lively conversation as they rush back to Jerusalem, just turning over in the heads, all and talking and discussing again, but in a different way about all the words that Jesus had spoken to them just hours before on that same road going the opposite direction. And they can't wait to relay everything to the rest of the disciples that they've witnessed and they've heard. And many of those disciples, they're still despondent because they haven't seen the risen Lord yet. And So they go back to Jerusalem with this regained hope, with this, they're they're changed people. And note that Jesus, He didn't tell them to go back. He didn't tell them to tell anyone. He didn't give them any instructions. They just went. They just went to speak. They couldn't they couldn't help it. Their hearts burned. Their feet ran, ran. Their mouths opened. The Lord is risen indeed. That's their confession. That's what, that's what Jesus is pursuing, provoking, unveiling grace does. It propels us. That's its design. It makes us confessors. We don't need to be badgered to to proclaim the gospel to one another or to the lost. We don't need to be badgered to evangelize or manipulated by guilt or shame, but proclaiming Christ and His promises, confessing the good news of Jesus Christ inside and outside of the church, it should be as natural to us as it was for Cleopas and his companion. We talked earlier about how these disciples had had in a sense written Christ out of their own script. But by the end of this story, how do they see themselves? They see themselves as the ones now written into Christ's story. They, they are now supporting actors in His narrative, His script. A story far better than they could have written. And so, I just say to us, we're in it too, brothers and sisters. We're in it. We're not trying to figure out how we're going to write the story of our lives, what we're going to do for what we are going to do for God. We are, we are to see ourselves as joining God in what He's already doing in the world. He is working before you were born, and He'll be working after we're gone if He, if he tarries. And, 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 and so He is working to reconcile sinners to Himself through the preached Gospel. That's a radically different perspective. Do you understand that? And, and, and the more we have that proper perspective, the more eager and willing we will be to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with others. So let's be excited and, 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 and go and ready to confess and, and share this gospel just like these two disciples were. I, I pray that church, this is a good time for us to, to pray for, for God's reviving work in our midst, in our hearts, in our church, in other churches in our community my dear brother John sitting up here, fellow pastor here, that we might be renewed in our compulsion to proclaim the gospel of the Lord. Uh, this, is, this is a burning desire on the on the hearts of our elders. I can just say that. This is something we've prayed a lot about. Uh, even this year, we're planning in the fall to have a class on evangelism, not because we think a class is the answer, but we just want to keep throwing fuel on the fire of our of our propulsion and compulsion to preach Christ where we live. So what was the message of that first Easter day, that first Easter meal, we could say, as we're talking about meals? We, we understand, I hope better now, it's not just the resurrection, but it's also the cross, and this is what Jesus was doing as he recounted these things for these men. That the Easter message is not just simply that someone has risen from the dead. Because we know just earlier, not long before Christ was crucified, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. There had already been resurrections. The Easter message is that the crucified one has risen. He showed him, we're going to see this next week, he showed these disciples his hands and his feet. Scars. The one who was made sin has risen. The one who died our death has risen. The one who stood in our place has risen. The one who was forsaken by God for us has risen. The one who was rejected by the world has risen. This is the one who lives. And so you see those words of those disciples despairing on that road. We had hoped. We had hoped. He was the one to redeem Israel. But they thought hope was gone because Jesus had died and the dead Messiah can't bring that kind of liberation. But this is the message of Scripture. This is what Jesus is opening up through, through this journey and at this meal with His disciples as He peels back the blinders so they can see Him for who He is. It's that, it's that Christ had to suffer in order to redeem only a crucified Christ can redeem. Only a Christ who dies in our place can redeem us from the penalty of our sin. His followers thought that the cross demonstrated that, that Christ couldn't be the Messiah. The scriptures show that the cross proves he is the Messiah, the one that the law and the prophets pointed to. Romans 4:25. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification justification that you know that's a that's that legal technical legal term the declaration that someone is in the right the resurrection is in a sense that declaration it declares the price has been paid at the resurrection jesus walked free from the sentence of death sentence has been paid in full and we walked free with him that's our that's our hope what grace What? Grace. Graceful. There's an old hymn. um, It says, fountain of grace, rich, full, and free. What do I need that is not in thee? What do we need that's not in Christ? Full pardon, strength to meet the day, whatever today, tomorrow holds. Here it is. And peace, peace, dear despondent Christian which none can take away this is what this is what jesus speaks of in this meal let's pray father we give you thanks for your word we thank you for we thank you for this story of of redemption and we pray i i beg you lord that you would plant this word that you would plant the gospel this good news of Jesus, crucified and risen, deep, deep into our hearts. And the more we apprehend the grace that is ours in Christ, the more this message will be on our tongues as we proclaim it to others, more naturally, more freely, more boldly, more joyfully, more expectantly. Lord, just as we we're so in need of this message coming to us and you were gracious to send a messenger and an open mouth to confess this gospel to us father may we now run freely as recipients of this grace proclaiming this message to others we pray this in Jesus' name amen